following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. I love that moment when the little boy ran up to his daddy and says, Daddy, where did I come from? And the father takes his attention off of whatever he was doing and he smiles at his son and simply says, God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them such a wonderful love for each other that when the love got so great and they couldn't contain it anymore, God gave them the ability to have a, a baby. And then they had another baby and more babies, and those babies grew up to be adults, and they had such great love for each other when they were able to get married and couldn't contain their love anymore, then suddenly God gave them the capacity and ability to have a baby. And so when I met your mom and we fell in love and we got married and our love for each other got so great that suddenly he made it possible for us to have you. And the little boy thought that was such a neat story. And he ran out of the living room and ran up to his mom in the kitchen who was making dinner. And, and little Junior says, Mommy, where, where did I come from? And the mom says, well, once we were all monkeys. And then little by little, every single day, we changed and we evolved into these human beings like we are today. And that's where you came from. So little Junior ran up to his dad and said, you lied to me. And the dad smiled and says, no, I didn't lie to you, son. Your mom was talking about her side of the family. <laughs> there is something about telling jokes and stories where you do this thing called the setup and then you give the punchline. And there's this relationship between people and ideas and things. And sometimes when you look at those relationships, they make all the difference in the world. I mean, it's one thing to listen to Donald Trump give his little diatribe of one thing or another. It's another thing to listen to Hillary and let's listen to her for a little bit. But boy, when you put them together on a stage, it gives me a headache that lasts all night long. <laughs> but it's that relationship together and that combination of things, juxtaposition as some people like to refer to it, that sometimes gives ultimate meaning to things that we see in this life. And some of these pictures are a lot like that. The relationship together between two things makes the picture. Whether it's just the kingfisher or a little guppy, by themselves it's not all that fascinating, but together and with that expression on the little guppy, that's, that's pretty amazing. And of course there's always a photo that says a lot more than what words could ever put together. I don't know if you call this, oh, what a relief it is, or just picking around, or what do you call it? But the relationship together, it's amazing. And then the phenomenon of action frozen in time it just makes all of us stand in awe and look at a picture like this and say, this is absolutely stunning. Or the picture of two relationships or two animals together, and you know something is about to happen. So you always wonder about these kind of photos, a relationship together, out of context or by themselves, they're interesting, but together the fascination of that relationship is very, very powerful. Or the photographer who captured this, one hunter capturing another hunter and giving us a moment of pause at life in its natural way out in the creation that God has made it, gives us a moment of tremendous, fascinating pause. And sometimes it's just the appearance of relationship that gives to us a fascinating moment. 
not two, but one with the appearance of two. And that relationship gives to us an amazing moment to ponder. Well, in some ways, uh, this life that we live is a lot about all of that because sometimes we take things apart to such a degree that we examine them in isolation. And that's always helpful. But don't forget that we have done that almost from the standpoint of making up a concept to define something. And sometimes one of the best things we could ever do is put it back in the context of relationship. Prayer is one of those topics. Prayer is one of those topics that gives to us a great sensation that if we study it by itself, that's great, it's helpful. But so much of Scripture that teaches about prayer, it's always in its context of relationship with other features that the Bible is teaching about, and also in the context of how we can appropriate prayer in our practice and our daily routine. Prayer all by itself is a fascinating topic, but we must also realize that God teaches it in the relationship with a number of other things that give us a perception that sometimes we have overlooked. Now, that's one of the things when we think about prayer in the kingdom because it's part of this greater control or domination that God wants when Jesus Christ is in control. Whether it's in a moment in history or whether it's in the domination in our life, he being Lord and sovereign in our life, how does that relate to how I practice my intercession and my prayers as I live through my daily routine? All by itself, Sometimes we put it off and say, yeah, my prayer life is a little bit on hold right now. I wonder what in the world we're thinking about when we put it on hold. Maybe we've forgotten that prayer is a part of the entire Christian life, and that's what kingdom teaching is with relationship to how we communicate with Almighty God. Here is a fascinating passage of Scripture that deals with prayer, and we can study prayer all by itself within a passage of Scripture like this. But this morning as we look at it, I'd like us to see it in the context of how prayer relates to a great deal of our Christian life together. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 8, 28. Ooh, here we go. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers, Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, this is not a long passage of Scripture. It fits on a single slide on PowerPoint. It's really not a lot of content. But boy, the topics that the Apostle Paul lists, one after the other, gives to us a sensation that prayer is not to be pulled out as a separate context or a separate issue, but the relationship of prayer to all these features is fascinating for us as believers. I'd like to suggest that if all of us men left this room this morning and understood the context of how prayer is in 
vital relationship with a vast amount of our Christian experience, this city would not be the same again. If we actually practice prayer from the standpoint of this context, each one of us, in the groups of people that we'll be touching today, in the relationship of projects that we're going to be overseeing, in the relationship to those with whom we are very close and intimate in our family, if we practice the context of prayer in its totality as Paul gives it here, we would be world changers. And it fascinates me the power of what he's saying here. And if we have a moment, I'm even going to read the context before this, because out of the context, it's absolutely fascinating. The Apostle Paul gives us this instruction of where prayer fits in to what the kingdom is all about. One of the things I noticed, first of all, as a pattern of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, contextually and group-wise, with a number of things that he says are very important, is that Christians are all about always. There's something about our pursuit of Christian living that has very little to do with, oh, I'm going to pick this today, or I'm going to put this on hold, or this part of my life is a little bit weak, so I'm going to get to that eventually. So much of what we think about our Christian life is selective rather than in total an expression of a way of living. And almost every area of our life of our interest, so if we were to list all the hobbies in, in this group, whether it's athletic or a specialized area of interest, we would all know that in that area of our concentration, we wouldn't be selective and pick and choose only features of that area of interest. We know it's a total involvement for us to be involved in anything. Okay, I have studied the martial arts for a lot of years. I mean, I'm Asian, my name is Bruce, and I just, I just kind of got live up to my, live up to whatever God has placed before me. And no one steps, any martial artist knows you don't step onto a mat to face an opponent and think, I'm only gonna concentrate on using a left punch today. I mean, you do that, you just want to select one thing that you're going to do, and you're going to get killed. And maybe I'm not as good as the other martial artists that I'm squaring off with, but I'm going to use everything in my arsenal to try to defend myself and fight my opponent. That's the same thing with Christianity. You don't just walk off out of this room today and say, I'm going to concentrate on prayer today. There's a lot of what the Christian life is about, of which prayer is a key ingredient for sure. But that relationship with other things, just like those photos, just like a relationship between a, a husband and a, and a wife and a father and a mother who try to teach their children about life, the relationship of all these things together must be put together in play. First thing here is the scripture teaches us to be joyful always. Uh, when we think about being joyful always, it's clearly that the Apostle Paul is talking about the expression of joy and from which joy bubbles up from our spirit. That is a feature of prayer that must be part of our consideration. So as the Apostle Paul goes on here, he was really suggesting that there's something temporary and something circumstantially related to this business of joy being expressed. There is an emotion that's related but not dependent with regard to joy because if it's emotionally driven, that's what happiness is. If it's something deep-seated and consistent and expressive, that's what joy is. Scripture teaches us in Philippians 2, 17 and 18 that joy is equal to this deep-seated relationship that begins with Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural, 
transformational change in the life of an individual where the life of Christ has made a difference in who I am as an individual. Joy, apart from Jesus Christ, cannot exist, does not exist. The Bible does not recognize it. Emotional happiness or elation or, or delight, that can happen to any human being because that's a human emotion, not just for the unbelievers. It can be for, part for the believers too. Christ used that term many times. But joy is exclusive to those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. We must be, from the standpoint of being joyful always, and this is an expression of an attitude, not simply an action that occurs. It is something deep-seated in our soul from which it emerges into an expression in life. What gets us there? The context is fascinating, and we'll try to get to that before our morning is over. But I uh, like this idea of being joyful always with this picture. This picture is someone that you have never met, but has absolutely changed my life. This is my grandson. And not only is it a picture of my grandson, but I took it this year, or I had my daughter take it this year, because my hand is in the picture, is I helped my grandson catch his first trout. Now, I, I don't care how big the trout was. He just caught a trout. And the, the, the expression on his face is absolutely sheer happiness. But the joy in me as I helped my grandson catch his first trout is way beyond that. I pray for that kid every day. And as delightful as he is, I am looking for the day when he accepts Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and his life is transformed forever because the happiness of a moment like this is going to be translated into a deep-seated, long-lasting kind of joy that he has never yet experienced as a human being. That's the difference. And in this relationship between grandfather and grandson, when this relationship of love, an amazing relationship, can now fill up my soul so that I will want to travel to see him, it's now going to be enhanced greater when the day when he comes to know Christ as his personal Savior. And when you leave this room today, if your prayer life has not been touched by the depth and the immense unleashing of this elation of joy, your prayer life can never ever reach to the points when God wants it to be and where he wants it to, to end up. Joy is a kind of expression of prayer. When we as transformed individuals go before God and thank him for the changes he's made in us, that's why the Apostle Paul says, be joyful always. Not just when circumstances are great, that's happiness. Not just when your dreams are being fulfilled, that's happiness. When your joy joins with that happiness because we know that God is in control of everything. And because of that, my attitude is very much linked to whatever I do in my communication with Almighty God. Whether it's asking for something, whether it's praising Him for something, whether it's just an expression of delight of something, my communication with God changes because of my transformed life that Jesus Christ made happen. So he tells us here, even more specifically, that we must pray continually, which is still related to the concept of our interaction with God. So this word prayer here is that word that's oftentimes linked to our worship of God, and that's from the old English language of ascribe worth to, worship, ascribe worth, 
that we actually let God know how valuable and how incredibly amazing he is to us, what he means to us. And so the Apostle Paul says, make sure that this is a continual or a constant expression on our part. So when he says this about prayer and making it continual, it's, it's not something that's like a, a, a line that starts at a point and continues on without any breaks in it. Probably the best description is the word pray continually is like a hacking cough. And so you're not coughing with this long cough that's no breaks, but the cough is, repeats itself. Sometimes there's gaps in between that are long. Sometimes there's very short, sometimes staccato type. But when it's one of those relationships where the cough is always there. So this is what prayer should be like. And when we're, when we're out in the road, when we're out driving and no other human being could ever hear or sense what we're thinking about or experiencing on the road, how many times have you tried drive-by prayer? When someone's been in an accident or someone is a jerk of a driver because they're transplanted from California. <laughs> it's one of those kinds of moments when we can actually, instead of cussing them out in a sanctified way, we can actually pray for them. And we can get there to the office and we can say, yeah, you know, there's, there's a couple people here today that look like they're really under it. And I'll never have a conversation with them, but maybe we could pray for them. I and mean, drive-by prayer, why can't it be as effective as drive-by shooting? So here is this whole sense of pray continually so that our lives are going to have this constant opportunity for us to engage God in some kind of communication where we become his avenue as we touch base with the lives of a lot of people. But there is an attitude that the Apostle Paul brings up here, joy, prayer, gratitude. What an amazing phenomenon if we were known by reputation of people who are thankful people. Thankful people are thinking all the time of what it means when life, whether it's good or circumstances are bad, we are grateful because we still have a transformative relationship with Almighty God to face whatever he puts in my path. And no matter what it is, whether it's good or bad, we know that God can take some things and do some amazing things as a result, even though my short-sightedness thinks that this is not a good deal. Gratitude dominates our attitude. Now, we could always test this. If you're married, we could ask your wife. If you're in a relationship, we can ask your significant other. If you're close to some of your friends, we can ask them confidentially. Your friend will never know that you told us this. How would you rate your buddy on a, on a grade from 1 to 10, where 10 is the highest, as far as an attitude of thankfulness? Do you sense that in their life? Or are they bitter? Are they sarcastic? Are they facetious? Are they always cutting other people down? Are they thankful? Are they speaking well of the circumstances and the people that they are around? Now, most of us guys, the older we get, the more cynical we become. But transformative Christianity in the kingdom of people who understand prayer, we become more thankful and grateful the older we get. And people become the best barometers and the measurers of how that has actually occurred. Initiative is ours. And I love this about what the scripture suggests very subtly, both in the grammar and also the meaning and also the sequence of the lessons. It's up to us now that the instruction has been given. Will we take the initiative to implement this in our lives by the power of his spirit? 
And most of you guys who've been a Christian for a long time, you know that the Bible is really important. And of all the 66 books, the book of Romans is probably the most representative of what we think about this amazing miracle of being redeemed and justified. And if you, if you believe that, if you've gotten to your Christian life when you've come to that conclusion and realization, just from your exposure, from what other teachers, people teach you, and what you've read on your own, you know that the book of Romans is very much about once we understand what God did for us miraculously for our own redemption, now it's up to us to take the initiative to live a life that's going to be dedicated to him out of sheer gratitude for the sensation of what it means to be justified by Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who rose again so that we could have a life that's going to be worth living on this earth of all the anticipation of what the future is. That's why in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, I don't command you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, this is the smartest thing you could possibly do and anything else would be absolutely ridiculous, ludicrous, and stupid. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, as in the Apostle Paul, one who has that kind of spiritual authority, I direct you to. He doesn't do that either. He just simply as an equal, as a brother, I urge you. And in a lot of ways, from the standpoint of just understanding meaning, he says, if you want to thank God for what he's done for you, what I have just explained for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, if you just want to say thank you to God for all of that, dedicate your life to him. Put it on the altar as a living sacrifice. Holy, spiritual, this is your reasonable act of worship. That's the Apostle Paul's amazing argumentation of how to live the totality of our Christian life, of which prayer is a part of it. Not in isolation, but a part of it. That's how we live our Christian life. This is God's will. I mean, you want to know what God's will for you is? Every time I go to a retreat and they say, oh, thanks for coming to be a speaker. We know that we're asking you to speak 12 times in three days, and that's that's, uh, you know, I, we know that's a lot, but we, we really are glad you're coming, and we wondered if you could do a workshop on top of all that since you're here anyway. <laughs> and probably nine times out of the ten, they say, can you, can you do a workshop on finding the will of God in your life? So, yeah, easy, no problem. It's one of the most common things that Christians keep on asking for whenever you do a retreat. And say, yeah, let's turn our Bibles to Romans 12. This is what God says is his, his desire for us to understand his will for us. And, and after you explain that and show them in Scripture, what do they do the next year when they ask their speaker to come? Do a workshop on how to find God's will for our life. Yeah, it's right here. We just did it last year. God's word is so clear. It's not a mystery. He's not playing a shell game with us. And if we can just get down these simple basics and just live them, what an amazing difference we will make in the lives of people that we impact and touch for eternity. Three elements of prayer in the context is a joyous spirit and constant persistence and this whole phenomenon of gratitude that overwhelms our life. But just before we look at the scriptures from the standpoint of this passage of scripture when we go into our discussion time, the context that precedes this section in 1 Thessalonians astounding to me. This is what the Apostle Paul says in verses uh, 12 and all the way up to where we've been studying. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you. So we're thinking, okay, these guys who've got this tremendous Protestant work ethic, well, no, he's not getting there yet. He hasn't finished. 
who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to recognize that God has set apart the lives of certain people called pastors in our context, our moment in history, who are working hard, not for themselves, but for your benefit. Make sure that you respect them. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, if you're here and you're part of Houston's First Baptist, uh, you know, we, we, we have the tremendous privilege of having Pastor Greg as our pastor. And, and I tell people, just from a practical standpoint, who are trying to figure out how to do local church and all the imperfections of people around them, and they, try, they get so confused with issues and business meetings and all that other stuff, and they, they, they look for some kind of guidance. I simply tell them, you want to be God's great change maker in the local church? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what you do. You give your heart to the pastor. And they look at me with eyes bugged open and the mouth dropped. And I say, what? Give your heart to your pastor. And the, everyone always thinks, well, what about if? And look, don't, don't talk to me about the exceptions. Yeah, there, there are some people out there who shouldn't be pastors. There's some people who pursued it for human reasons. But by and large, when, when a man dedicates his life to ministry and realizes the talent that he has and doesn't pursue any secular vocation in pursuit of the almighty dollar, but instead realizes that God has called him to ministry, to live a life pretty much just beyond poverty compared to people who have the capacity and the capability beyond them. And they do it out of sheer love for the Lord and the sheer love for all of us. Give your heart to your pastor and watch what God will do. So if you're at another fellowship besides Houston First, just give your heart to your pastor and watch what God will do. And for all of us here, we have the great privilege here at Warriors Heart to have an example of all that with, with Eric. Have you ever talked to the guy, how bright he is and how capable he is? If he had chosen a secular path instead of God's calling, you know, we'd, we'd be asking him for loans. But he's here serving us. And all God says through Paul, respect them. They work hard. For, they work hard for the Lord. They work hard for all of you. Now, out of the context of all that, the Apostle Paul says, now, one of the things that you don't want to do is when the Holy Spirit moves within the context of where we are, don't quench his fire. Now, if, if you want prayer to really work in your life to the point where you're joyful and when, the point where you're praying constantly and when you're grateful through your prayer life, if you want that kind of prayer in your life to be kingdom-based and oriented and flavored, then Give your heart to your pastor, and whatever happens, when the Spirit of God moves, man, don't quench his fire. I, I never quench the Spirit's fire. Yeah, when your pastor is wrapping up a very powerful message, and you're thinking, I, this doesn't apply to me. Man, if we don't get over to that restaurant real soon, we're going to have to stand in line because all the people get out of church, and they're going to beat us there. We don't realize how many times our unspoken attitude in the midst of what God is trying to do in the lives of people around us cannot be influenced because there is this neglect on the part of godly men who should know better and saying, boy, Lord, thank you that you saved me. Thank you this gospel message was heard by me, by your spirit, 30 years ago. But now pastors giving it now, and there's some people here in the congregation 
who are wrestling with it. God, I just pray your spirit would be open to transform that life this morning. What would happen if a, a, a light went on above each one of us who's praying for the Lord and the light was so bright it turned into a flame of fire? Because when our pastor's preaching the word and he's coming to a conclusion and driving it home, we are praying that kind of prayer. Because we've given our heart to the pastor and we now never want to quench the Spirit's fire when he's moving in the lives of people around us. I mean, the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, if it, if it was a part of our life, every one of us, when we left this room, man, the city of Houston would not be the same. And constantly, all of us who are in ministry are keep on struggling. God, this is the fourth largest city in the United States, and we are praying that you would do a tremendous revival here. But every time we try to try to do something, let's get together and pray about this, the, the, the spark is so, so small. And then before you know it, the spark goes out. It's okay, that wasn't the Lord's timing. Let's just try to figure this out. How, how can we see the city of Houston get turned on for Jesus Christ in the way in which man could be the spark from which it begins to light a fire that the Spirit of God does not allow to go out. But how many men know what the Scriptures say and are putting out the Spirit's fire and don't even know they're doing it? If prayer is always taken out of its context all by itself and not seen in relationship to my attitude of gratitude, my disposition of joy, my constant coming before God in conversation, I can't really be much of a player in what God wants to do in my life, let alone that, but in all the amazing sense of how he wants to change his city for who Jesus Christ is. Well, that's what prayer is all about, I think. One great feature with regard to how prayer fits in to the kingdom picture. In 2008, we received the horrible news in, in, when we were living in Michigan that my dad's cancer had returned. He's in California. And so for the very first time, my wife and I, as we prayed for where God is leading us for ministry, we prayed for a geographical relocation. We never prayed. We never cared. God, just take us to wherever you want us to go. This is the first time after almost three, over three decades of serving him, we actually asked God to take us to a geographical location. We said, God, you, you, you knew this before we did. Dad's sick again. His cancer's coming. He doesn't know you yet. And Savior, if you can bring us back, to California on the West Coast, someplace close, we'd love to be influential in his last days. That's a very sincere, unselfish prayer. And so we got the phone call not long after that from our son who was living with us in Michigan at the time. He and his wife were in the same city and said, hey, Dad, um, I guess this is good news in the sense that I got a promotion, but the promotion means that my company's shipping me out to California to start a new branch of our company there. So, and I said, well, great, congratulations. I said, when do you leave? He says, well, we're going to be leaving next month. And that was kind of a downer because that was uh, September, so they were leaving in October, and our Thanksgiving dinner was going to be pretty, pretty meager without him and his wife. So we said, praise the Lord. Hey, we'll catch up later and hung up. And I, I remember going to God and saying, you know, we asked that you would relocate Yvonne and me to California. And, hey, God, you know, you answer prayer, but, you know, I, I don't think you heard part of the prayer that I was. 
And so the very next year, uh, sometime in October, our daughter and her husband, who were living in Indiana, just an eight-hour drive from us in, in Michigan, they said, hey, we got some news. Uh, our company is uh, transferring Dustin, our son-in-law, her husband, uh, back to the West Coast to take up a responsibility of helping this new merger that we acquired this other company, and he's going to be a part of that. Oh, when do you leave? Oh, two weeks. Man, Thanksgiving the year before was really slim without our son and daughter, and then it was going to be really slim next month. And it was when my wife and I and our one single son sat there and looked at this huge turkey. And we thought, man, this is kind of a downer. I, I remember praying again. I said, Lord, you know, <laughs> I was asking for you to take Yvonne and me back to the West Coast, and now you've taken four of our children back there, and I wasn't even praying that you would do that. And we sort of chuckled, but sort of cried. And then the next year in 2009, 2010, the Lord called us and took Yvonne and me to San Francisco to pastor Sunset Church. And when we were there, just for a couple of weeks, I got a phone call from our, our single son who was back in Detroit. said, hey, I just got accepted to Samuel Merritt College University Medical School for their PA program, and it's right there in Oakland. And so amazingly enough, God did more than answer our prayer. He moved our entire family from the Midwest to the West Coast. And then we, Yvonne and I were there for, for my dad's last three and a half months of his life. Shared the gospel with him many times. Still don't know if he accepted the Lord, but there are a lot of good indicators that at least give us hope that the first thing we do when we get to heaven is to look to see if he made it. So I remember after he passed away, thinking, well, okay, the Lord brought us all out here. That was great. And then my youngest son, the single one who was there, he's, he had been at school now for only like three months. He was sitting there and said, you know, Dad, I, I've just got this weird feeling. It's like my whole left side is numb. I'm losing feeling in my fingers. Man, go get that checked out. So we got it checked out. He had a malady called a Chiari malformation when his brain was too small for the skull. So it started to push down the skull onto his spinal cord. And, and it formed a cyst on his spinal cord. That's why he was losing all, this, all of his um, neurological relationships of his uh, appendages. So they, they did this amazing surgery because one of the top three neurosurgeons in the country who specialized in carry malformation, one of those three was in this San Francisco practicing at the University of California in San Francisco. And not only was he there practicing in the, in the city, but he was a classmate of my older brother in medical school. So my older brother said, oh, yeah, I'll give him a call. So he gave him a call. They got our son right up to the front of the line. They had this amazing surgery. And then my son was back without any kind of pain. He's out rock climbing, finished up his, his career as a physician assistant. All because of prayers. We prayed that God would bring us back to California for my dad, for my wife and me. No idea. That he was thinking about my entire family, my dad, and the opportunity for the gospel to be presented to him, and then for my son to be there with us, with that surgeon there in town, during this time when he had the Chiari malformation, and none of us knew it existed. And I, I just marvel that when you pray, and you live your whole life around prayer with this joy, this gratitude, God takes care of a lot of details that we didn't even know about. 
so last month, my younger son called me and says, Dad, you know, those feelings I had six, six years ago, he said, yeah, because they're back. So in our prayer time, we went to God and said, now we're bitter. We're really angry with you because you only did a partial miracle. Well, obviously not. God, you took care of this before. We are trusting you to take care of it again. So he did his MRI, and they said, it's not Chiari malformation. It's this matter here. He needs a, he needs a, a shot to take care of the, the friction on his spinal cord with the vertebrae that it's running through. That's all he needs, a shot? Yeah, that's all he needs is a shot. And that's what he got yesterday. But before that, when we got the news, it wasn't because of circumstances surprised us that we were upset about it. But if you live your life with joy, if you live your life where prayer is constant, when you live your life where gratitude is the most important thing because all that God has blessed us with, we don't have the right and don't even have the desire to ask him for more. We're just grateful for what he's given to us. God keeps on leading the way in powerful, powerful ways. That's prayer in the kingdom. Have a great discussion, guys. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Open up your hearts and love.